Welcome into Mock Trial Masterclass, your guide to controlling the courtroom. I'm Luke, and I want you to be a Mock Trial Master. And in this episode of the Mock Trial Masterclass podcast, we're going to talk about how you can make that happen. This is the first episode of the Mock Trial Masterclass podcast, and new episodes will be available on the first Friday of every month. And all we're concerned with, all I'm concerned with in this podcast is helping you get better and helping you become a mock trial master. That's it. All the questions that I'm going to be asking our guests, everything that we're going to focus on in this podcast is all about helping you be as good as I know you're capable of being. Objections can be one of the most complicated and overwhelming parts of mock trial. I always say that. And our guest today, Amanda Mundell, is someone who is dedicated to helping you and everyone else who does this activity we call mock trial, handle objections with confidence. Today, she's going to answer the questions that I know you probably have about objections, how to make them well, how to argue them, how to win them, how to practice objections, get good at them, and how to conquer the rules of evidence. She's a national champion. She's the author of Winning Objections, a Mock Trial Guidebook. Amanda Mundell, welcome in to the Mock Trial Masterclass podcast. Thanks, Luke. So happy to be here. The first thing I want us to go over, let's hop right in, because I think, and you talk about this in the book, I think this is the foundation for everything we talk about when it comes to objections, and that's why do we make objections? Because we make objections when something is not allowed by one of the rules of evidence. Can you explain for everyone the difference between when we object to something that is not allowed versus when we object to something that is not reliable and why the latter of those two, when something is not reliable, is really never what we're going for. Sure. I mean, in some ways, the rules of evidence are designed to ensure that the evidence that comes into trial is actually the most accurate or reliable version. Um, But, you know, everybody has this gut instinct when they make an objection that they're just sort of reacting to something that sounds bad for them or sounds questionable or sounds iffy. Um, And that's not what you want to do. You want to go back to the rules of evidence and use that as a starting point because the rules are there to ensure that accuracy and reliable information um, and information that the jury can trust comes into court and not just anybody's gut instinct of what feels wrong or what might be questionable. And then once you start the rules, you really have a good baseline for understanding what evidence is admissible, what evidence should be used that's persuasive with the jury, um, and what you should be focusing on when you're asking your questions. You make a great point about how the rules of evidence really do play into reliability, because one of the greatest uh, explanations I ever heard is, you know, it's not like a bunch of old guys sat down and said, well, uh, let's come up with some court rules. How about we have hearsay? And how about, you know, what happened is they looked at evidence that, that was coming in and they said, okay, what, what should be allowed because it is reliable and what shouldn't be allowed because it's not reliable? And like you said, that's what the rules give us. 
That's exactly right. I mean, at least that's the hope. Um, you know, you look at some of these hearsay exceptions and you think, well, it's hard to imagine that this information is is really totally trustworthy. Um, but but that is the basic idea. It's a safeguard against unfairness. It's um, a means of ensuring that there is order, that trials run on time, that prosecutors are put to their burden, that defendants have a fair chance, um, and even in civil cases, that there's fairness across the parties. And to make sure that no one gets confused, because we, we've talked about how the rules themselves uh, promote and, and advocate for reliability with what evidence a jury gets to hear, can you explain for us how a speaking objection, where someone launches into a logical argument where they're saying, you know, objection to whatever because, you know, he was blind, so how could he have seen these things? Something like that, where, where there's no rule being cited and you're not basing the objection on the rule. How is that different from what we've been talking about when something is not allowed because of a rule? Sure. I mean, you want to always make sure that when you are making an objection, you're keeping it short and concise. It's like the most reliable way of ensuring the judge understands what you're saying. But on top of that, in real life, which is different from mock trial, you have a jury who's listening to everything that's coming out of your mouth. And if you're objecting to something without you know, a basis in the rules of evidence, it's just an opportunity for the attorney to start making arguments in front of the jury that are improper. And so, you know, in your example, if you're objecting to something, say, an eyewitness said, and you just launch right into your explanation of why this isn't permissible or why it's unfair, it has the opportunity to really taint the jury's perception of what the evidence is or should be. And it previews something that the jury may not be allowed to hear under the rules. One thing I like to say with speaking objections is I think it takes the work from your opponent and puts it on your shoulders when you start launching in and explaining these things. Because if if I'm on the receiving end of an objection and, and all you say is objection relevance, right? I've got a lot of digging I have to do. I have to go reach for what relevance means and, and recall that definition and do all sorts of other things. Whereas if you launch into one of those arguments that you were just talking about, You've really done most of the work for me and led me to where I'm supposed to go. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, it, you know, if you think about in the mock trial context where objections are really one of the ways that you gain points or gain an advantage over your opponent, you never want to be in a position where you've basically previewed your entire basis for the objection before they even get a chance to respond, because then they have even more information to use against you or even more of a basis to, you know, make a good pitch in response to your objection. So let's talk about the rules of evidence in a general sense, what we can get into some specific ones in a little bit. But a story I always love to tell is, is when I did high school mock trial, uh, because it was local, my dad got to watch, I think, every round I competed in and all the time. My dad, by the way, worked for a construction company at the time, now uh, runs his own restaurant. And all the time he would come up to me after rounds and say, Luke, did you notice how xyz competitor on the other team just didn't know the rules and it always amazed me when dad said that because he didn't know any of the rules either but every time he said that he was exactly correct i'd say yeah they they really didn't know what they were talking about Uh, it, it shows doesn't it when you don't have that command of the rules of evidence it really does. And, you know, there's lots of techniques and ways, and, and you've gone over this too in, in some of your episodes of how to really communicate some of that confidence. Um, but once you have a good baseline understanding of the rules, you can really demonstrate both your ability to think on your feet and your ability to make logical arguments. And when your opponent doesn't have that knowledge, if they don't understand what the rules mean or or they don't exactly understand how it applies, um, it does put them at a disadvantage. And it's I think it, it tends to be pretty obvious even to observers in the room who don't have a, you know, a true knowledge of the rules either. 
And, you know, I think when we talk about how important it is to know the rules of evidence, we're really saying something out loud that everyone knows and that everyone's thinking. But the question I think that people have is, okay, I know it's important to understand and know the rules of evidence. The question is, how do I get there? So before we even get into what you teach about how to get there, because so much of that is in your book, what was the biggest obstacle for you as a competitor? Because I'm guessing you didn't wake up. I know you competed in high school. You didn't wake up in the ninth grade and and were able to recite, you know, 15 different hearsay exceptions. What was what were the <laughs> obstacles for you in getting to the point that you ultimately got to? It's true. Um, in fact, when I was a ninth grader, I was a witness and I didn't understand half of the objections that were being made in the rounds. Um but I think it really, it really was a matter of just putting in the time um, and really sitting with the rules and breaking them down. Um, I happened to compete in mock trial in California in high school. And so that system is a little bit different. The rules of evidence are simplified. And so in that sense, I had a little bit of an easier uh, introduction to the That's rules the of evidence. It's the only thing easier another. about mock trial in California. <laughs> yeah, the time limits are really brutal. Uh, and some of the other objections that are allowed. Um, but yeah, I mean, unlike other high school competitors and of course college students, we had a much more simplified set of rules. So that really allowed me to kind of think about common sense, basic colloquial ways of explaining these rules. And once I understood those and had the benefit of, you know, wonderful coaches who, you know, worked with us and taught us those rules, then it just was a matter of putting myself out there and really forcing myself to stand up and take a risk and make an objection. Um, and that just came down to practice. And, you know, I have over and over again told students a lot of what you just said. It's what you got to put in the time, you got to put in the effort, you got to study it. And then I feel like a lot of times we we just sort of unfortunately leave them with that. And, and they have the work ethic and they have the desire, but they don't know where to go. They don't know exactly what they're supposed to be putting that effort toward, what they're supposed to be spending their time on. So, so what's the answer to that question? Where do you go? How do you go about actually getting better at the rules of evidence and gaining that grasp? You know, I think it can be a little bit um, case by case dependent, depending on how you learn. But I, I like to split up objections into a couple of different buckets. You know, think about why the rule exists can really help you, you that. know, anticipate where this objection is going to come from, right? Like when we think about, say, character evidence, which is a really hard objection, um, and even I have to go back to the rules and remind myself, you know, what exactly this rule is about. But we think about that rule um, in terms of, you know, scapegoating. We don't want to just have somebody's past behavior, which could indicate some sort of character trait, mm -hmm. label them in a particular way and, you know, force them to predict this type of behavior in, in this case. Um, and that's a fairness concern. It's a scapegoating concern. And once you understand that motivation, then it becomes easier to really identify places to object. Um, I mean, the other thing is that I, I really encourage my students to do um, at all levels is to reframe the rule in their own words. We try to do this in the book, try to break down the words into you know common usage terms instead of the jargon that is the rules of evidence. Um, but once you can put it into your own words, you can explain it to somebody else. And that's a way of getting you comfortable articulating these rules, articulating how they apply. And then when it comes down to it, you know, I, I force my students to object basically to every question. I have them either write down in their scripts or in practice, stand up and say relevance to every question, object hearsay to questions that might not exactly call for hearsay, but sort of, you know, are tangentially related to hearsay so that they get the practice just making the objection and then they get the practice on the other side of defending against some of these objections that are, are sort of silly. 
Um, because as I'm sure you know, <laughs> not everybody gets the objections right. So you always have to practice both, you know, good objections and also getting ones that are pretty bad. Um, and once you do those three things, you think about the purpose of the rule, you try to put it in your own words, and then you just march through the list of rules and think about how they apply to each question. I think it becomes a lot easier to get comfortable and at least start you know, building those blocks towards becoming a really superstar objector. I love the idea of getting that consistent practice of objecting to every question because so much of it does become a feel thing. You know, you can know the techniques and you can know the rules and we're about to go over some of those techniques. But at the end of the day, on a case-to-case basis, you know, I'm going to talk about how you should return to the rule with every objection. Uh, You mentioned sometimes you get a bad objection. Uh, I coach with a lawyer who, when he coached a college team one time, the other team, uh, someone stood up and said, objection, I don't think the jury needs to hear that. And his competitor... (laughs) Uh, totally floundered in that moment because they started going back to rules and and you know trying to make an academic argument when all they really needed to say is, uh, Your Honor, if opposing counsel is not going to cite a rule, I'm just going to continue with my examination. Thank you. Right. So so much <laughs> of it is a feel thing, and I, and I want to break down something else you talked about as well, which is understanding why the rules exist. I, I hit on that a little bit earlier about how these rules didn't come about randomly. There's a logic behind them. There's a a reason that you know, for example, a party opponent statement is probably more reliable than your typical hearsay out-of-court statement. How do you think that that understanding of sitting down and not just memorizing the rules, but saying, okay, why do these exist and how do they apply logically to each situation? How can can that approach take your performance to another level? Well, I think it really helps you identify places in the margins where something in your gut feels objectionable. It sounds objectionable, but on the face of the rule, you know, maybe it satisfies the technical requirements, but it's just an unusual case. In that sense, when you understand why a rule exists, um, why it is that this, you know, rule matters, you can start to use the underlying purposes to guide your argument. Um, So you can either say like, well, the hearsay rule exists to protect um, against, you know, the risk of of inaccuracies and to ensure that there's an adequate opportunity for cross-examination. But here we have a statement that appears to have been made by a computer you know, it's not totally clear if this is a human-generated statement, so maybe it's a declarant, maybe there's no declarant, um, but there's really no risk of inaccuracy. There's no risk that someone is losing a chance to cross-examine. And so when you understand the purposes, you can make an argument that, you know, under the rules may be hard to make, but it can persuade a judge that this rule either does or does not apply. So I want to move into talking about specifically maybe general principles for making and defending and arguing objections because I think that's probably why a lot of people are listening to this. They're saying, well, what does a good objection look like? What does a good argument look like? So let's start with just making an objection. When I teach making objections, there's three things I always go back to. This is on the YouTube channel, the Mock Trial Masterclass YouTube channel. I say you always got to cite a rule because that's what we were talking about earlier. We don't just make logical arguments. We're saying this is not allowed, and there's a rule behind that. I say you got to make the other side do the work, right? You hit on that. You want to be concise. You don't need these lengthy objections that give your opponent the answer. And you need to pick your spots strategically. You can't object to every little thing because at that point you become an obstructionist and you become annoying and people do notice. 
So what, what would you add to that list? Uh, how would you summarize that list? Where do you stand when it comes to making good objections? No, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that entire list, in particular, the strategy. You know, that's something that once you get comfortable with objections, you have to make these difficult calls. You know, it might technically be objectionable, but is it really A, going to hurt your case? And B, are you going to lose credibility because you're popping up and, you know, making these ticky tacky objections? Um, I think the only thing that I would add to this list is just always remind yourself that it may be good to tell the judge what the offending testimony is or remind the judge what the witness just said that is objectionable because as I'm sure you've had this experience in mock trial, judges do not always listen with open ears for the full time. Um, you know, sometimes they're taking notes, sometimes they're just distracted. And so, you know, once you cite a rule and you identify, you know, how that rule applies, you always also want to remind the judge what this testimony is. The witness just testified this, or the witness is about to explain if I may make an offer of proof that, you know, et cetera. Um, but otherwise, I think that list is extremely comprehensive, and I would that's exactly what I recommend to my students. And I think it's especially important to make that uh, direct offer of, hey, this is what the witness is about to say, with hearsay. I think specifically, because every time that hearsay comes up, if it's if it's a, a good hearsay objection, if it's a, a an actual real one that has substance, uh, we're dealing with an out-of-court statement. And so I think it's very important before we argue, before we get into anything, hey, what is this statement we're talking about? What is the basis of this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that comes up all the time with exceptions, especially with non-truth purposes. We have to understand what the statement is before you can really walk through the exceptions or non-truth purpose that might apply there. So, so that covers making objections, and I tend to think that that's a little bit easier because oftentimes you're maybe even just standing up and saying two words, right? Objection, relevance, objection, hearsay. It's when you get into arguing objections that it gets a little bit more complicated. And so I want to break that down. I'll talk about the three things like I did with uh, making objections, the three things I teach. And then I would love for you to break them down and add to the list uh, as you see fit. First, I always say, my students know this, I, I throw it down their throats. Uh, you got to return to the rule when you're arguing objections. That is the first thing that has to happen because... Sometimes when you're arguing objections, it devolves into chaos because no one is centered on the rule. You're making logical arguments instead of arguing based on the rule. So what I teach is that I always say if you have not done mock trial for at least four years, because at that point I'll let you have some creativity, uh, if you haven't done that, every time you respond to an objection, the first thing out of your mouth needs to be according to rule blank. Why is it so important to stay focused on the rules? Well, as we touched on earlier, you know, not everybody makes an objection that's completely rooted in the rule, and not everybody makes an objection that's defendable under the rule. And so when you have an opportunity to go back to the language to remind the judge, you know, this is what hearsay prohibits, or this is what improper character applies to, then you're able to say, all right, now that we're working with the right rule or we understand the language, here's how this testimony doesn't fit into that bucket, or here's how this exception applies. Um, so it's important to remind everybody what that rule is so that everyone's on the same playing field and that the judge understands you know, how you're going to make your logical argument after that. And another thing, a reason I think this is important too, is I always remind my teams, you know, last year we had a criminal case and I kept saying, y'all do realize like no one's going to jail actually after this. 
right? So from a legal standpoint, it doesn't really matter whether we win the objection. What matters is how do we look? How are we performing in order to affect our scores? And I think when you're able to pull any rule out of your back pocket, even if you can't cite a number, even if you just say, you know, the rule against hearsay says or or the relevance rule says as opposed to going to the numbers, that looks really, really impressive to scores who in high school oftentimes aren't even trial attorneys. I mean, in Tennessee, we often run into uh, tax and contract lawyers. And when they're watching these students pull the rules of evidence out of their back pocket and quote them and apply them versus just making a logical argument that that tax attorney or that contract attorney could make themselves, it looks really, really impressive. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, objections in mock trial are not just about, you know, controlling the type of information that comes into the round. It's about points and how you look. And so the more like a real seasoned trial attorney you can look, the more facility you have with these rules, the better. So the next thing I say is that once you return to the rule, you need to connect that rule to what we're talking about. Because I think a lot of people get that first part. They'll go to the rule and say, you know, relevance is any tendency to make the fact more or less likely. Hearsay is an out-of-court statement offered for the truth of the matter asserted. But then we never really get how that applies to the current situation. So what I say is you return to the rule, and then let's connect that rule to what we're talking about. And if that connection is difficult, then you've probably cited the wrong rule. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the rules, once you break them down into you know plain language terms, the rules give you the basic building blocks of what you need. You know, hearsay is an out-of-court statement offered for its truth. So the chunks there are out-of-court statement, offered for its truth. And then when you apply that, you just go step by step. Is this an out-of-court statement? Sure, because the witness test, the witness said this, you know, in the bar down the street. Um, is it offered for its truth? Yes or no, and so on. And so once you have the rule down, then you just march right through the rules requirements and link that to the specific testimony that's at issue. And I think this is especially important, kind of like we were talking about a minute ago with uh, saying, hey, this is the out-of-court statement we're talking about. When you're dealing with hearsay, you need to explain to us specifically if you're not offering it for a truth purpose, if you say, judge, this isn't for the truth of the matter asserted, we need to hear what it is for. Because I, it, it, I think this might be my, my ultimate mock trial pet peeve, like fingernails on a chalkboard when I hear someone say, uh, Your Honor, we are offering this to show the effect on the listener. And then they stop talking and we never get to hear who the listener was and what that effect is, and it, it gets sustained and everyone's upset because we just didn't take that one step further. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's a very, I think that's one of many common mistakes that, you know, newer uh, competitors may make. Um, but, you know, anytime you have this non-truth purpose, for example, you want to make sure that that non-truth purpose actually exists, is rooted in the evidence, explain why it matters. Um, and that's why in our book, Winning Objections, you know, we often link relevance concepts to this aspect of hearsay, because if the non-truth purpose doesn't matter, if the listener's, you know, reaction is never going to come into court, then we shouldn't be talking about this statement. Um, and so that's, you know, that's always, again, something to take your objections to the next level. Just make sure you follow through. And then the third thing I always say is that you've got to fight. And, and one of the best explanations of this I heard is I heard someone say, your, your objections can't be like a gumball machine where you just drop the quarter in and turn the crank and, and step back and the gumball is going to come out, right? You, you actually have to keep going 
uh, if you want to win, you can't just drop in those two words, objection, relevance, and expect to get what you want. And, and with this, uh, I have some student questions for you, and I want to go ahead and jump to one of them. Uh, Kirian asks, how much passion should you put into your speech or when you're speaking when you're arguing an objection? So there's that question for you, and it ties right into this about you got to fight for your objections. Yeah, I mean, I would start with the fact that if it doesn't look like you care about the information, it's hard to expect a judge to think it really matters, um, especially in the mock trial context, where your judges may not know the rules as well as you do. Um, but I always tell my students, you know, people can tell when you're not being yourself. Um, and so your passion should match, you know, the level that you that you would bring to it. Um, and also, you know, you should react like a human being. So, you know, we had this happen to us in a round recently with my college students where um, an attorney objected to evidence that was pretty important and the judge wasn't totally following, you know, which aspect of the case law and the rules of evidence really applied. And our attorney got a little bit more animated, not disrespectfully, mm -hmm. but because this is such important information um, that the other team is kind of hiding the ball on. Um, and I think that's totally appropriate. You don't want to go, you know, over the top, but, you know, react like a human being and, you know, put the passion in that, that you would to your performance, you know, whatever is natural for you. And I think you just identified two misconceptions that I want everyone who's listening to this to understand because this works in your favor. Number one, the judges probably don't know the rules as well as you think they do. I think when, when you're 15 and you're starting high school mock trial or you're 18 and you're starting college for the first time, you assume everyone knows more than you. When oftentimes, if you've done the preparation, that might not be the case. So with that, how do you go about, because you mentioned the word respectfully, right? How do you go about teaching a judge uh, when they're clearly wrong and you're clearly right? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you know, mock trial judges, you're going to get a, a range of extremely competent to extremely inexperienced sometimes. Um, but, you know, I try to tell my students, you know, the judge at the end of the day is there for the most part to be fair and to receive the information that you are giving them. And so if you break it down for them in simple terms, if you ask to approach, for example, with the rules of evidence, um, because not all judges are going to have it right in front of them to mm. say, Your Honor, I think it would be useful in this jurisdiction to take a look at how our state addresses the hearsay rule, for example, um, then you, you give them all the building blocks that they need. And if they make the wrong ruling, you know, some judges will do that just to see what happens. Others will just make mistakes. They're human beings. That's okay. You know, you'll be prepared to roll with it. Um, but as long as you're doing it in a nice, you know, respectful step-by-step -step manner, that's all you can hope for. And then you kind of put it into the judge's hands to see what happens. And the other issue, it's kind of tied to this, is the idea of, look, if you look passionate and the other side doesn't, uh, that's going to benefit you in the end because that's how you're going to get judged. Totally, especially with judges who you know may not know the case as well as you, or who, if it's a really close issue, who really find it hard to you know side with one side or the other. The more passionate you are, the more invested you are in the evidence. At least there's a chance that the judge is going to say, "All right, well, we better let this in because it seems really important and it's kind of on the line." Um, and this and this student is really passionate about it. That kind of thing. What do you do if you don't know what to say? <laughs> um, sometimes you have to ask for help. So, you know, you hope that this never happens in a round. But if you're really stumped, um, it's I think it's OK to ask for a moment to confer with your fellow, you know, 
attorneys at your bench because you know it's, everybody has a moment where they just kind of forget or they don't know where they're going. Um, and so if you ask for a little bit of help there, you might get an advantage. Um, but otherwise, you know, that's kind of the exciting part of mock trial. You know, you're always up there risking, um, you know, the next question being something that you, you don't anticipate or the next objection being something you've never planned for. Um, so I think you have to get comfortable a little bit with that discomfort. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, if you can't ask your co-counsel for questions and for help, you can always ask the judge and say, Your Honor, I apologize. I don't exactly understand opposing counsel's objection. Maybe they maybe they made a confusing objection and the judge will help you out there, too. And I noticed how in that explanation, you did not say to stand there and say, I stand by my objection. <laughs> I really I hate when people do that. Um, I, you know, I, I admit I have done that before, <laughs> I think um, we all particularly have. when <laughs> particularly when I have made a bad objection and I realize it. But it, but it's actually better if you have made a bad objection and you suddenly realize this is a horrible objection, it's a losing objection, it's baseless. I think it's better to say face and say, you know, in that case, your honor, um, I'd withdraw the objection as if you've, you know, recognized that opposing counsel had such a lucid argument and it's also not a big deal to you, that it's totally fine. We're just going to move on. We've spent some time on uh, hearsay. There are a couple of other specific objections I want to talk about. I want to talk about relevance a little bit, and I want to talk about expert objections a little bit. First, though, I want to remind everyone who's listening that you can schedule coaching with me. That can be one-on-one, one-on-two, or I can come uh, to you and your entire team via Zoom. You can find a link to do that in the show notes or on the description if you're listening on YouTube, and we can do anything you want. I can listen to a speech and give you feedback. I can coach on a specific area you would like help with. It is entirely up to you, so go find that link either in the show notes, on podcast apps, or in the description on YouTube. Amanda, my favorite thing in your entire book, and you're going to say, wow, I worked that hard, and that was your favorite thing in the book, but my favorite thing in the whole book is when you're talking about relevance and you introduce the eye roll test. I love the eye roll test for relevance. I I smiled very, very big like I'm doing now when I read that in your book for the first time. Explain to us what the eye roll test means when it comes to relevance. Well, I think everybody has had a moment in a round where they listen to something and it's just sort of like, okay. And, you know, you roll your eyes. Um, You know, I think this is supposed to train students to really respond a little bit more to their gut. You know, relevance is one of the most overused objections. Students object to things as not relevant because they just like it gets under their skin. But if it's really something that is far beyond necessary for the case, that's really when you want to stand up and say, this has gone too far, Your Honor, this isn't relevant. It makes no facted issue more or less likely um, we are just so far afield. Um, otherwise, you know, mock trial is supposed to be fun. You all have your character, you know, quotes and jokes you want to get in. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to be that person who stands up and objects to every little thing that might feel a little extraneous. So that's kind of what we what we do in the book with the IRL test. Like really make it count if you're going to be objecting relevance. Where do you stand? Because I've heard this was coached to me at one point and I've heard it coached. I don't love it. I'm curious what you think. The whole starting every relevance response with we're on a relevance is a low bar. Yeah, you know, that has its moment um, and it can be useful if a judge is really on the fence. 
but it also makes it sound like you don't even think the evidence is that relevant, right? So if you start off by saying, well, Your Honor, lots of things are relevant, it's almost like, well, maybe this isn't relevant, but just let it in anyway. So mm-hmm. I always like to have at least a full-throated defense of every objection. So you know, find some little fact in the case that this piece of evidence is going to be tied to. Um, and more than just relevance is a low bar, I really like, you know, this evidence just has to be one link in the chain or one brick in the wall. Exactly. Because it it doesn't avoid, it avoids minimizing your evidence um, while also explaining that it doesn't have to be, you know, this smoking gun, game-changing piece of testimony. And, and along with that, um, you mentioned how with relevance objections, a lot of times it sort of devolves into, I don't like this. I feel like that's also the case with 403 sometimes. Definitely. People uh, misuse Rule 403 all the time. So Rule 403, as I'm sure the listeners know, is really a shorthanded way of getting at a variety of different pieces of evidence that shouldn't come in. You know, just because you pass the relevance test doesn't mean that everything else is just automatically admissible. And so Mm -hmm. under Rule 403, evidence that is substantially more prejudicial than it is probative to your case or substantially more misleading or, you know, substantially more likely to waste the court's time than it is actually useful or probative is inadmissible. And that prejudicial aspect of Rule 403 is really where students um, fall (laughs) fall by the wayside because they think that prejudice is just anything that hurts you. But in reality, prejudicial testimony is anything that is going to lead the jury to decide the case on an unfair basis. And, and Lots that, of evidence in and, a trial. And that word, unfair, that's key because that's the word in the rule, right? It's not just prejudice, yeah. it's unfair prejudice. Exactly. You know, all testimony in a trial should be prejudicial in some way to mm-hmm. the jury, right? It should be persuading them, you know, either for or against your side. And so it's really this unfair aspect of prejudice where they're deciding a case because they simply just don't like this witness's, you know, behavior, or they simply don't like the way the defendant was dressed. You know, that's the type of prejudice that we care about. And so that's what, you know, 403 is really designed to protect against. So I want to talk about experts just a little bit. Uh and here's my main question. This honest, this is the one question of all that I've asked that is honestly less about all you listeners and more. I'm just curious what you say about this because this was the biggest challenge for me as a competitor. And it's you have your expert on the stand. I think this is an epidemic in college mock trial. You have your expert on the stand. You set up you know, their expertise and explain why they're an expert. And then you, you say, all right, Mr. Expert, what's your opinion in this case? And then here comes the methods objection. And if you were listening to this and you have ever competed in college mock trial and directed an expert, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I remember it got to the point in college where my teammates would like, you could see their faces when I would get that objection because they knew how mad it made me. And the reason it made me so mad is the judges never followed me when I would explain like, well, it is reliable for these reasons and that reasons. And and then phrases like known error rate and statistical data, most of that comes from case law, some of which isn't even in the packet, gets thrown around. What do you do in those situations? Because they are incredibly frustrating every single time. Yeah, that's hard. And I think just to step back, you know, everybody thinks that an expert has to have this you know, fancy method. And, you know, maybe they've got an acronym or maybe they've applied like a particular scientific test. But the vast majority of experts... When I was at Belmont, we got to the point where we just started making up names for the method. 
Like if it was yeah. uh, if it was I reviewed documents that that became comparative analysis. You know, we would make right. up the name just to satisfy this 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 weird objection. Yeah, and that's sort of the weird fiction that Montreal operates because you know most experts don't have a method. They you know most are consultants. They come in, they review materials, and then they apply the knowledge and experience that they've been carrying around in their brain for decades yeah. to the facts in front of them, and and they and it spits out a conclusion, right? And so you know that is that is tricky. So you have to be creative a little bit with how you describe your expert's process for walking through the materials. But once you've described that. You know, to hit on this idea that it's almost a little unfair when people are objecting under Rule 702 to things under, you know, like Daubert or asking for a known error rate for these methods and things like that. You know, we're lucky in in the college level that we have case law that says, you know, none of those things are actually dispositive when you're assessing whether an expert's opinion is, you know, satisfies the prongs of 702. But in high school, if you don't have the benefit of that, you kind of have to reason from first principles and say, you know, listen, Your Honor, not every method is going to be subject to an error rate. Mm -hmm. But this expert has already testified that this is the method that they've used in numerous cases, that it's consistent with the sort of method that other experts in their field use, you know, at that point, that's good enough to pass the requirements for 702. And if opposing counsel wants to cross-examine on that, you know, that's that's their their option mm-hmm. when it's their time. And if you really break this down further and further, you start to see how bizarre it really is because because that was the phrase that always came up, right? Known error rate. An X-ray. Is, is there a known error rate for an X-ray? I mean, it's a picture. It's a picture of bones. Yeah. Is there a known error yeah. rate for an MRI, right? Not everything is a chemical test like a, a toxicology screening or something like that where you've got a, an Excel sheet and, and a data chart with numbers. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, at some point, I think this is where, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about understanding the motivating principles behind these rules, understanding why it is that we want to safeguard certain opinions before they come into evidence or, you know, kick out other opinions when they're not accurate or reliable. That's sort of what Rule 702 is also getting at. So it can't be the case that just because a method doesn't have a known error rate, it's automatically unreliable. You can kind of use some common sense to figure out what makes a method reliable or not reliable and then reason that way with a judge. Amanda, before we close out, uh, because I always think that when it comes to objections, it is very helpful to hear them done well, because we can talk all day about these principles and we'll apply this to that. But until you really hear them and you start to get it under your feet, um, it can be difficult. And so what I would like to do, if you're up for it, this would be an honor for me, is for us to have an objection exchange for our audience. That's a, that sounds exciting. I'm a little sweaty. I'm nervous. Let's do it. <laughs> so I, I, I've picked out a sample scenario. It, it's, a, it's the most common scenario with Rule 403, and this will let us sort of dive into what we were talking about earlier with the difference between unfair prejudice and prejudice. This was always the example every time I've heard 403 taught uh, pictures of a bloody, maimed, dead body in a murder case, right? I feel like that's the the run of the mill four hundred three objection. So, yeah, definitely. Would you like to be on the giving or the receiving end of this objection? Uh, I'll I'll be the prosecutor. I'll be the one offering the evidence into into trial. Okay, uh, we have no judge. So we will just, uh, (laughs) I don't know how we'll do that. We'll just assume that everything we ask permission for gets granted. So I will stand up and I will say, 
Objection rule 403, may I explain? Which, by the way, I think you should always do that with 403 because it does become very, very muddy quickly. Your Honor, rule 403 says that evidence, though it may be relevant, if the probative value is substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice, it is inadmissible anyway. And what we have here is evidence with low probative value and a high danger of unfair prejudice. When the jury sees these pictures of the dead body, not just dead, but bloody and maimed and in really, really rough shape, the facts are going to go out the window, their emotions are going to be inflamed, and all they're going to be thinking about in the jury room is what this picture has in it and nothing else. Your Honor, if I may respond. Yes. I guess we don't have a judge, but <laughs> yes. I, Your Honor, I, I'd just like the court to take notice, first of all, of what these pictures are. Now, it's true that these are bloody, gruesome pictures of the victim because this was a bloody, gruesome murder. Now, the defendant's been charged with murder, and one of the defenses that the defendant may raise, though we don't know for sure, is self-defense. Now, looking at these pictures, we intend to argue that the state of this body is not consistent with the defendant simply fighting back, but instead is consistent with the defendant planning, plotting, and executing a gruesome murder. Now, we agree these are difficult to look at, but I think we have to give the jury a little more credit that they can take a look at the images of what happened to this victim, understand the context of this crime, and apply the facts in a fair and impartial manner. That's what every single one of them swore to do during voir dire before this trial began. This testimony and this evidence is probative because it goes to the type of crime committed here. And so there's not this risk of undue, unfair prejudice simply because these images are gruesome. You threw me a curveball with the self-defense defense. <laughs> but that's what it is happens. sometimes good to have some basis, but you know, it's, it's tough. <laughs> this is a really hard one. I, I don't think prosecutors win this one very often. <laughs> well, let's see. Now I got to work with that. Let's see what we can do. Um, well, Your Honor, if what we're concerned about with these pictures is uh, the level of the damage to the body so far as it perhaps proves uh, what the government wants to say was self-defense, then by all means, let's tell the jury about it. Let's describe it to them. Let's get as, as detailed and as filled with adjectives as we can and tell the jury what's in these pictures, but we don't have to show it to them because there is that probative value of the self-defense perhaps, but when we show them the picture versus just telling them about these things, that's when the scales start to tip and that probative value is no longer outweighing the danger of unfair prejudice, but rather is substantially outweighed by it. Your Honor, if I may just have the last word here, since we're the proponent of the evidence, you know, if counsel is effectively conceding that a verbal description of this image is no different than, you know, a jury understanding what the bruises and the marks and the stab wounds are consistent with, then I think we've already, you know, conceded here that there actually is no unfair prejudice. If the jury is going to be able to hear a brutal description of what happened to this victim, that's not going to be any more or less prejudicial than them seeing this picture. You know, again, I would remind the court that this is probative evidence of the gruesome nature of the defendant's crimes. There's a serious charge at issue here, and there's a risk that the defendant is going to try to put on his own photos of his own wounds and sort of engage comparative analysis of who was beaten worse. The jury needs to see this evidence to assess the, you know, the brutality and the nature of the defendant's crimes. You use my own words against me. That's the, the perfect <laughs> strategy for objections. 
that's fun. I, you know, I miss doing this. I don't, I don't, I'm not a trial attorney. I'm an appellate attorney. And so we don't do these objection yeah. battles in real life for me, just in mock trials. So it is kind of fun to, to do it, but it's hard. Yeah, yeah. This is the, one of those areas where, especially in mock trial, you know, it's going to be tough to get those pictures out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I hope that's helpful to everyone just to see it, it not to toot our own horns, but to see it done well. I mean, we're, we're both people who have done this a lot and done it successfully. Uh, we know what works and what doesn't. And, and honestly, that's probably how it should look, where you're returning to the rule, you're using what the other person says, you're listening, right? You're not just reciting what's on a script. Um, that's what it's all about, really. Objections are fun. Once you master <laughs> them, you have unlocked a new way of you know exactly. winning rounds. Amanda, before we close out, uh, this is the first episode of the Mock Trial Masterclass podcast, but every guest will be answering these two questions at the end. And that is, what was your biggest mistake and your biggest success in your competing career? Because I got a lot of people listening who have made, who've done stupid. I've done stupid, right, in mock trial. And it's easy to feel defeated and bad. And so I want them to hear from from one of the best, someone who's writing books about this stuff now, that everyone makes mistakes, everyone does stupid. So what's your biggest mistake and your biggest success? You know, it's hard to identify the biggest mistake. I'm sure there have been mistakes I've made that have, you know, resulted in evidence not coming in that should have come in. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the mistakes that really sticks with me because it it left such an impression after a scoring judge commented on it in front of everybody was sort of running away with my questions of a witness and tagging the word right on to every oh, single yes. question mm-hmm. so many times that it annoyed every single person in the room. And I don't, you know, I, I had been doing this for years. I don't know what I was thinking, but I just got carried away. And so it's so embarrassing. Um, and it, and it feels like such a minor mistake, but it just stuck with me forever because, you know, it just goes to show jurors will pick up on the, the slightest things and, you know, polish and presentation really matters. Um, greatest success. You know, I think because you have a lot of, you know, high school students that you work with, you know, one of the most exciting times in my mock trial career was going from, you know, a, a school that had never really made it past county. You know, we, we made it to state, but we never really advanced beyond that to finally winning state and going to nationals for the first time. And we finished like middle of the pack, you know, like a team that had never mm-hmm. been there before and didn't know exactly what we were doing. But it was so exciting to have worked for four years at an activity and then see all of my teammates finally achieve this success for our county that hadn't been done before. That was really awesome and really solidified for me how important mock trial was going to be. Um, and then, you know, propelled me into college and, and law school and now here where I, where I coach and teach. So, and that's not easy a in California. Journey winning state <laughs> it's not you know marin county wins basically all the time so you know when ventura county can pull out a w it's very exciting <laughs> amanda this has been fantastic it's been fun for me but i hope that it's been uh, helpful and informative for all of you out there listening to this go buy amanda's book go to winningobjections.com. it's worth every penny um i, I have used it not only um, just to sort of improve my own understanding, but I've used it in coaching and said, well, here, look at look at what they say in this book. Uh, so, so thank you for all you do for the Mock Trial community, and thank you for coming on to this podcast today. Thanks, Luke. Same to you.